Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. As many of you have gathered by now, I avoid politics on this channel. Occasionally I talk about the government. I talk about politicians, but I try to avoid politics, and I also try to avoid um, real controversial topics. I also don't talk about religion, because generally speaking, those kind of topics, most people have made up their minds, and so I'm never going to come on here and say, oh, by the way, let me, let me talk to you about why you're wrong on your position of some political thing. I, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not what my channel's about. But I got a ton, a ton of emails asking me a question about a recent trial where the subject of the trial, the guy on trial, extremely controversial, well-known, and there's a legal issue that arose in the trial. And I think it's a fascinating legal issue. But I have to talk about this, but I don't want to get embroiled in the controversy. So I'm going to talk about the legal issue and do my best to separate it from the trial itself because I don't want to weigh in on that. Because that's too touchy and political and, and everyone's already got their own opinion. So what my opinion is won't affect yours. So if I told you my opinion, it would be trivia and nothing else. If you want trivia, I got trivia all day long. But that's not what I do here on this channel. So I'm talking, of course, about Alex Jones, who's a media figure who was being sued by some what they call Sandy Hook families for defamation. And the lawsuit was taking place in Texas. Now, I don't know if it was actually televised live, but it was streamed live. And then portions of it have been played uh, on YouTube and elsewhere. And in essence, Sandy Hook was where there was a mass shooting. And Alex Jones, on his show, on his platform, had said that he didn't believe the media was telling the truth with what happened. And as a result of that, the families of the victims alleged that it made their lives difficult because people started attacking them, in essence, calling them liars and so on. And so the families sued Alex Jones for defamation. Defamation. They said that he had defamed them by saying that the shootings weren't real. Okay, so I don't want to weigh in on that at all. And I'd prefer that you didn't do that in the comments either. What we're simply talking about is there's a man on trial in Texas for defamation, okay? A lawsuit is filed, they litigate it, and it goes to trial, okay? So the trial is happening in Texas under Texas law. I will give you the caveat right now. I'm licensed in Michigan. So I'm going to tell you right now that the questions that occur to me might have slightly different answers in Texas, but... But I'll explain to you why some of these things are the same from court to court and state to state. So this is a lawsuit, not a criminal case. Alex Jones was not on trial and being prosecuted for a crime. He was simply being sued in a civil action. It's the first thing to remember because in civil litigation, the parties go through what's called discovery. If I sue you or you sue me or we sue each other, you can ask the court, if you're required to, or simply some courts allow it automatically, to let you engage in discovery. So we don't go to trial not knowing what the other side, and each side starts whipping out surprise exhibits, okay? If we prepared ourselves properly, we would ask the other side through interrogatories, which are written questions, or requests to produce, which are documents saying, we want to see this stuff. 
And the interrogatories must be answered under oath by somebody with knowledge of the facts. And if they don't have knowledge of the facts, they have to sign something saying we've got no such knowledge and they have to swear to that as well. And requests to produce can ask for anything that is both relevant or could lead to the discovery of relevant evidence so long as it's not privileged. So I can't ask you to provide me with communications between you and your, and your attorney. But I can ask you for the memo that you've got that you wrote about something important to this case. And so I can tell you right now that I've done so much litigation in 31 years. And it's pretty much been lemon law the last 15, 20 years. But I've handled all kinds of cases. And I've seen documents turned over in discovery where somebody said, oh, we got to give them this, don't we? And they turn it over and it's the smoking gun. And uh, I, I, I can think of a couple examples, but I'm not going to go too far off a tangents because this video might get too long otherwise. But the two parties were conducting discovery, okay? The two sides. And during discovery, the families say that they sent over a request for production and interrogatories addressing it for all of the text messages that were either sent by or received by Alex Jones that referenced Sandy Hook. So if you were to look at that request, whether it's a request for production or an interrogatory that asks a question, um, is that a valid request? And the answer would be, of course it is. It's a valid request, except if Alex Jones sent text to his attorney or received text from his attorney, those would be privileged. But if Alex Jones, for instance, had sent a text to a producer about Sandy Hook or had gotten a text back about Sandy Hook, that text is discoverable. That's the term we're talking about. Now, you have to understand that they sent over the request and they specifically asked for text messages that reference Sandy Hook. So presumably, any text message that contained the words Sandy Hook would be discoverable. Now, you have to understand that you only have to turn over evidence that exists. So it's possible that there are no such texts. It's possible, right? It's very possible. I know people who've got smartphones who don't text. They don't know how it works. They don't, they don't text. So if you send that person a request, they send me texts on anything, they're going to go, I don't have any. I don't text. So it's possible they don't exist. I'm just getting to this first. It's also possible that they may have existed at one time but no longer exist. And that gets you into a question. Did you delete them or destroy them and make them go away because you were worried about what they said? Or is there an innocent explanation as why they no longer exist? And I actually had a client once who worked for one of the major internet carriers, and he told me, if you request one of your texts from us, he goes, we'll tell you we've only got them for one year. He goes, if you drop a subpoena on us, we can find them going back two years. But he said, for us to save those texts forever... We don't do that. It's a waste of space. He goes, so we've got the system set to purge texts when they hit two years old. But up to two years old, we got them all. We've got them all. And he was just telling me that. So whether that's true or not, or whether or not it applies to this situation, I don't know. But it very well could be that you could say, uh, Mr. Leto, 
we want a text that you sent back in 2012. I'd go, well, I guarantee you, if I look at my own phone and scan back, it does not go back to 2012. It doesn't. And, and so I don't have them. Did you have them at one point? Yes, I did. Where'd they go? I assume they just evaporated after a couple of years because I didn't take screenshots. I didn't save them. So that's a question. Did they exist at any given time? So what a smart attorney would normally do in a situation like this, they would send an interrogatory and say, does defendant have any text messages at their control or that they have available to them within this time frame that reference Sandy Hook? Do those text messages exist, yes or no? If no, did they ever exist? If no, you're done. If they ever did exist, where did they go? If they still exist, see our first request for production. Produce all text messages responsive to that interrogatory. And that's extremely common. In fact, I'm willing to bet money that that's what they did here. I don't know for a fact, but I've drafted interrogatories. I've drafted requests for production. And that's one of the most common things you do. Does this stuff exist? If so, give it to us here. If it doesn't exist, did it exist? And if it did exist but doesn't anymore, where'd it go? That's all. That's all. So apparently, apparently, the defendants in this case responded by saying there are no such text messages. There are no such text messages. So apparently the official response was none exist. And I have that in quotes here, and I actually watched the portion of the trial a couple times, make sure I got the, word, the wording right. And the official response was, none exist. None exist. So, if you go on the internet, you can find a couple different versions of this. But you can find the unedited clip of Alex Jones on the stand, testifying, being cross-examined by the plaintiff's attorney. And he's asked a question by the attorney, the attorney says, you know what discovery is and what discovery is all about. And you complied with discovery, right? You complied with discovery. You weren't non-compliant. You complied with discovery. We sent you discovery requests. You responded to them. And he, and he answered in the affirmative. I believe he said yes, but he said, in essence, yes. And the attorney then says, and you said you could not find any responsive text messages, even though you searched. And by the way, the court rules say that if you're asked to look for something, you can't go, I don't have it, even though it's right there. You're required to put in a good faith effort to locate what they've asked for. Now, some people are going to say, Steve, what if they ask you for something that's, you know, a thousand pounds of paperwork? Well, you can complain and say that the discovery requests are overly broad and unduly burdensome, which obviously are terms of art because I say them so smoothly. Overly broad and unduly burdensome. And if that's the case, you object that way. And by the way, you can also ask the other side to pay. I actually had a case once where I sent a request for production to somebody and it turned out to be tens of thousands of pages of documents. They were all in filing cabinets but there's still tens of thousands of pages. 
And the other side said, yeah, we got them. You got to pay. And guess what? I paid a copying service. There's companies out there that bring in their own copiers and have someone sit there and make copies. That's what they do. (laughs) Attorneys create a lot of busy work for people, but they get paid and they get paid well. So you complied with discovery. Yes. You said you could not find any text messages even though you searched. Yes. Okay. So at that point, the attorney says, I'd like to show you some Mark Plaintiff's Exhibit 130. And it is apparently a printed out text message. And he hands it to Mr. Jones and says, it's a text message. Do you recognize it? Is, is that a text message from your phone? And there's a little back and forth on that because apparently Mr. Jones said, I don't know if this was sent to me or I sent it. You know, because you, you can have both halves of a text message. And they exist on two different phones at least at the same time. If I send you a text, you've got it and I've got it. And so he said, I don't know if this is off my phone or someone else's phone. And the attorney says, well, would you look at the bottom there? There's a phone number for the phone it was pulled off. Was that pulled off your phone or someone else's phone? And he said, oh, this was pulled off my phone apparently. And he said, I gave my phone to my attorney's. And so if they pulled this stuff off, great. But he said, in essence, I looked at it and I didn't find any text messages. And so that were responsive to the request. So at this point, plaintiff's counsel looks at the judge and says, Your Honor, at this moment, we move for admission of plaintiff's exhibit 130. And the judge looks at defense counsel and says, Are there any objections? And that right there is an extremely important moment in this story. Because the attorney stood up and said, quote, no objections. No objections. And one of the things you have to understand is that you make objections on the record to preserve the record. So if something goes wrong in the trial, because the objection wasn't sustained, you can later go, I objected. And the court didn't sustain my objection, and something got in, and it screwed the trial up. But if you don't object, or you say, no objection, you're on the record now saying there's no objection to this. And I know I'm hammering a very obvious point, but the point is that the lawyer could have objected. We'll get to that in a second. So the attorney for the plaintiff then asks Alex Jones some more questions about this text message, and about how this text message would appear to reference Sandy Hook. And it was not turned over during discovery. Because they had said, we didn't find any text messages. And so, at one point, Alex Jones says, well, that's a nice trick. That's a nice trick. And the attorney says, do you know where I got these from? And Mr. Jones says, no, I don't. And the attorney actually said, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent them to me. Now, I watched this the first time when people were saying, Steve, did you catch the fact that Alex Jones's attorneys accidentally sent this mountain of evidence over to the plaintiff's attorneys by accident? And they confronted Alex Jones in the stand with it and said, your attorneys messed up. But I didn't catch at that time that the attorney said 12 days ago 
your attorney's messed up. And he says, and then a couple days ago, this stuff all became free. And what he was getting at was Texas law. So the rest of that day played out. And the following morning, or maybe two mornings later, but on a morning shortly thereafter, the defense attorneys filed a motion for, in essence, what I think would be considered a protective order. But they filed a motion where they said, we want, number one, them to give us all that stuff back because they admit they got it because we messed up. It was a mistake. It was an accident. It was inadvertent. We want all that stuff back. And number two, we want a mistrial because they used to cross-examine the defendant stuff we sent them by accident. And therefore, we want a mistrial. We want it all back. And, and we want them sanctioned. I believe the actual sanction is too, but I could be wrong on that. And so the interesting thing is that after the attorney for Mr. Jones got up and made that entire statement, the plaintiff's counsel stood up and said, Your Honor, we have an issue here because there's actually a law in Texas that addresses what happens when a party inadvertently gives the other side stuff they shouldn't give them. And it can happen, and I've had it happen in cases I've worked on. I've had someone send me something, I'm looking at it going, I don't think they, were, they meant to send this to me. And in those cases, I've called up the other side and said, I think you sent this by accident. Um, but in Texas, there is a specific law that says inadvertent disclosure of materials that would not have been discoverable, such as privileged materials. I mentioned that earlier. So an email between Mr. Jones as an, and his attorney, that's privileged. There's no question about that. So if they got that, that would be an inadvertent disclosure. But the law says that you can get it back if within 10 days you identify what it is that you want back and why, and you serve that on the party that got the inadvertent disclosure. And as the attorney mentioned on the record, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up. 12 days ago. And as they went back and forth making this argument, the attorney for the plaintiffs said, Your Honor, we got this stuff 12 days earlier, marking from the date that I introduced it in court. The day I got it, I sent an email to Mr. Jones's attorney saying, I just got this mountain of stuff. I don't think you guys intended to send this to me. And apparently, Mr. Jones's attorneys did respond, but they didn't respond in the nature in which they're supposed to respond under the statute. The statute says you're supposed to say, well, here's the stuff I shouldn't have sent. Here's why. Give it back or I'll file a motion on that. And he didn't do that. At least that's the allegation that the plaintiff's counsel made. So the judge said, I'm not going to grant a mistrial, number one. Number two, I'm not going to order them to give back everything because it sounds like there's quite a bit of it, but the allegation wasn't that all of it was privileged. Some of it was privileged. There's also some medical records in there. And I'm not sure what they'd be doing in there, but apparently they were in there. And so medical records are irrelevant in this case, and, and so they should be given back also. Obviously. No one's arguing with that. The judge even said, on the medical records, if you find them, 
send them back and confirm that you've deleted all copies. You have no more copies. Okay. The judge said, I'm going to grant you that one, the medical records. And then she said, and I'm going to give you some time on this, but she even said, I'm, I'm not even sure how much time, so make it fast. She said, but if there's stuff in there that's like attorney client privilege that you can identify and you can identify the privilege, she said, we'll revisit this. Basically, you can come back into court and make your argument again. So as it stood at the end of that hearing, there was no mistrial. The only hard ruling they got was the medical records must be turned back. But the judge would consider other things. So now, here's the issue. Here's the issue. There is a lot going on here. And it's a mess for everyone over on the Alex Jones side. And here's why. When I first heard this happen, my first thought was, wait, really? Alex Jones and his attorneys told the other side there were no text messages referencing Sandy Hook. That seems odd to me. But then again, maybe the guy doesn't use texts and neither do any of his employees. Because remember, when they send this over, it's not just for Mr. Jones, but it's probably for all the people in his organization. So I believe that his company was a defendant. But the point is that his employees would certainly be fair game for requests for production and so on. But here's the problem. If And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm going hypothetical now. I'm going hypothetical. I am an attorney and I have a client and the other side sends a request for production of documents over to, to me and my client and says, we want to see these documents. I bring my client into the office. I show them the request to produce. And I go, they want these documents. Do they exist? If my client says, no, they do not exist, I can say, okay. We will then prepare a response that says, these documents do not exist. And my client will sign it and we send it back. Documents do not exist. If I later discover the documents do exist, I have a problem. We'll pause there. Because the other scenario is, request comes over, my client comes in the office and goes, yeah, I've got those documents. I got a stack of documents. In fact, responsive to that request, I got a stack of documents right here. These documents are all responsive to that request. Not privileged, they are responsive. I'd say, okay, you understand we got to give those to them, right? We got to make copies and turn them over. If my client said, oh, I changed my mind, I no longer have responsive documents. Can an attorney, knowing that responsive documents exist, tell the other side or the court that they don't exist? Can an attorney help a client conceal evidence that's been properly identified in discovery? Or, again, another hypothetical, what if the client says these documents don't exist? I find out later they do. All kinds of different things happen here. So the first thing that occurs to me, and I've talked about this before, is the Michigan rules of professional conduct are the rules by which attorneys must act. We have to behave a certain way. And the rules are divided up, and this is unusual for people who aren't a legal profession, but it'll make sense as soon as I tell you, by the attorney's relationship so they define the relationship between the attorney and the client. That's one relationship. The relationship between the attorney and other attorneys. 
and the relationship between the attorney and the court, the tribunal. That's the term they use. So for instance, when I'm talking to my client, I got to behave a certain way. When I'm talking to other attorneys and dealing with them, I've got to behave a certain way. And when I'm dealing with the court, I'm required to behave a certain way. And when you do discovery, although the discovery is not generally filed with the court, proofs of service and other things like that are filed with the court and going to the court files. The court would have a record that an interrogatory is filed and it was responded to. But those documents are legal pleadings. So you should know that in Michigan, and many states have similar rules, candor toward the tribunal, candor, C-A-N-D-O-R, candor, 3.3, that's the rule. A lawyer shall not knowingly make a false statement of material fact or law to a tribunal or fail to correct a false statement of material fact or law previously made to the tribunal. So in my hypothetical where I'm the attorney, And my client says, these documents don't exist. And I find out they do. If the court asks me, do these documents exist? I have to say yes. I can't say no. I know they exist. And I I cannot make a false statement. It it, it would be a violation of the rules of ethics. I also, and here's, here's the other one. I also, and this is subpart three, I cannot offer evidence knowingly that the lawyer knows to be false. If a lawyer has offered material evidence and comes to know of its falsity, the lawyer shall take reasonable remedial measures, including, if necessary, disclosure to the tribunal. So if I said to the court, Your Honor, these text messages do not exist, and I later found out they do, I've got to stand up in front of the same court and say, Your Honor, I've got to make a correction. Previously on the record, I said these text messages do not exist. I've come to understand they do. And you'll notice it does not say with the permission of your client. It just says a lawyer shall not knowingly offer evidence the lawyer knows be false. If a lawyer has offered material evidence and comes to know of its falsity, the lawyer shall take reasonable remedial measures, including, if necessary, disclosure to the tribunal. Also, if a lawyer knows the lawyer's client or other person intends to engage or is engaging or has engaged in criminal or fraudulent conduct related to an adjudicated proceeding involving the client, the lawyer shall take reasonable remedial measures, including necessary disclosure to the tribunal. So that's right there aimed at if your client gets on the stand and you know they're committing perjury, you have a problem. I'm not saying it happened in this case. I'm saying I'm just letting you know that. So I remember that I took an ethics class in law school, and that was one of the questions that you'd often talk about. Your client is guilty like the day is long. They haven't been found guilty yet, but they did it. You know they did it. They told you they did it. And they say, you know something? I'm going to go into court. I want to take the stand. I want to testify. And I'm going to say I didn't do it. I've got this crazy alibi I came up with last night. Totally fabricated. Let's, by the way, let's assume that your client tells you this. I'm talking about a hypothetical here. Your client says, I committed the crime of which I'm accused in a criminal case. But I'm going to get on the stand and lie. I'm a really good liar. I bet I can snow those people. I bet I can get them to buy my story. I can get them to buy what I'm selling. 
I'm going to lie. And you say, well, you're the attorney, you say, well, you know, you're not allowed to commit perjury and you're going to be sworn to take an oath. You can't commit perjury. That's against, you know, it's against everything that is good. Your client says, I'm still going to do it. That's an ethical quandary. Because if you put your client on the stand and do the direct examination, knowing they're lying, you are aiding them as they commit a fraud upon the court. You're not allowed to do that. Believe it or not, the ethical rules simply get you caught up in how do you withdraw without hurting your client's case. But you can't proceed and say, oh, I'm well, they want me to. They hired me. They paid me. I, you know, I'm a lawyer. It's my job. No, that's not your job. That is not your job. Your job is to do your job to the best of your ability within the rules. And these are not rules in a game. These are rules of ethics that lawyers are bound by. And so that is the question I had when I heard his attorneys had turned over by accident a mountain of material, much of which had been requested in discovery, but they had said didn't exist. Does it exist? Yes or no? If no, where did it go? And yet, not only did it exist, but the attorneys had it. And so I've spoken to other attorneys, and we've discussed this. And one of the comments that someone made to me was, maybe his attorneys accidentally sent that stuff over so that they wouldn't get caught in the situation where Somebody later discovers these things exist. They said they didn't exist. And, oh, they had copies all along. Now, how somebody would find that out, I don't know. But that was one of the things I thought. Maybe this is one of those accidents that people have when they're trying to fix something. That, that was the possibility that people asked about. Because the guy bringing the motion saying he wanted all of it back was a day or two later. But now, back up to the objection, which I pointed out was so important here. The exhibit that was introduced into evidence, Plaintiff's Exhibit 130, I believe it was, yeah, was a printout, apparently, of a text from Alex Jones's phone. And on the record, the judge asked Mr. Jones's attorney, any objections? And he looked at it and said, no objections. And that gets us back to, if you say there's no objections, you're waving them. And he could have objected and said, Your Honor, I don't know where this came from. But could he say, I don't know where it came from because I've never seen it before? Could he say, I don't know where it came from because I was led to believe that this didn't exist? Could he say, I don't know where this came from because the only place it could have come from would be off a server at my office, which implies that I knew it existed, even though there's a discovery response saying it doesn't exist. And so there's a problem here no matter how this plays out. Let's suppose that the judge wakes up Monday morning and goes, you know something, I thought about it. Every single document in that dump, send it back to Alex Jones And you guys can't talk about it, reference it, use it, and nobody can use that stuff ever again at all. Never again. We still know it existed. And it would appear 
that there was a text message, at least one text message, that referenced Sandy Hook that his attorneys found on his phone. And yet, there was a discovery response that said, none exist. Those can't both be true. Either exists or it doesn't exist. This isn't Schrodinger's text. It, it either exists or it doesn't. Okay, And so that is the real problem. And that, to me, was the thing that I first thought of. My first thought was, if these things exist, then that discovery response is incorrect. And if it's incorrect, you might have a problem with the rules of professional conduct, whatever the parallel is in Texas, candor towards the tribunal, but also candor towards opposing counsel. You're not required to tell opposing counsel everything that they ask you. But you are required to deal with them ethically and honestly within the rules. My point simply is that that's how discovery works. And I don't know what happened in the Alex Jones case. I don't know. The allegation is that the attorneys messed up. And that's what plaintiff's counsel said. And the defense attorney says it was inadvertent. It was a mistake. But I want to clarify a couple things. Some people were saying that all of the communication was privileged and his attorney screwed up by sending it over. There's no allegation that it was all privileged. Some of it may have been, but the non-privileged stuff certainly is a different category. But there's a bigger issue here, and that is that the attorney had the opportunity to object to it in court and didn't. And he also had the opportunity to move to get it back a few days earlier but didn't do that either. And the plaintiff's counsel made that very clear in court when he said, I got this stuff 12 days ago. So on the day in court where Mr. Jones was on the stand, his attorneys basically had two warnings that this was happening. One was the comment, this is 12 days ago, and one was, would you like to object to this? And he didn't. So I don't know what happened here. I don't know. I don't know. But that's the best explanation I can give you as to what happened. And we'll see what happens going forward. I do know the jury came back and awarded some money to the plaintiffs. And by some money, I mean a lot of money. Uh, and so the real question is, will these documents show up in the other trials? My understanding is there's two more trials similar to this one. going to happen in another state. And whether these documents show up in any other settings. Because the rumor is that they've been requested by other entities. So we'll see. But it all appears to have begun with a massive data dump that was mistaken but wasn't corrected soon enough and was not objected to, at least with respect to one item, in court that day. So there you go for everyone to ask me. I apologize. It's probably the longest video I've ever done. Questions or comments, put them below. There's a talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Leto's Law. When we're happy, we often don't know it. When we're unhappy, we always seem to know it.